If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1, or Nehemiah 1, verses 4 through 11 uh, today, as we continue our series entitled, What Now? Moving Forward in a Time of Transition. And as Sarah told the kids, we're looking at Nehemiah's prayer as he begins uh, what God has set before him. Before I read this passage, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help and his blessing. Gracious God, you have told us that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, would you enable us to set aside the burdens that we carry and the things that distract us, and would we focus on you? Lord, feed us from your word and strengthen our faith. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have, not, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power, and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. In its early days, Dallas Theological Seminary was in critical need of $10,000 in order to keep operations going and to train men for gospel ministry. During a particular prayer meeting, renowned Bible teacher Harry Ironside, a lecturer at the school, prayed, Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Please sell some of those cattle to help us meet this need. Shortly after the prayer meeting, a check for $10,000 arrived in the mail, sent days earlier by a friend who had no idea the urgent need for the school or about the prayer. The man simply said that the money came from the sale of some of his cattle. Perhaps you've heard other almost like jaw-dropping stories of prayers answered by God that you're just like, we can't help but stand amazed and what God has done. Friends, we serve a big God, and he delights in answering our prayers. 
here in Nehemiah 1, we find a beautiful prayer. It's a model prayer, one that we can learn much from. You see, Nehemiah was an exile in, the, in Persia, and it's likely that he was born into captivity. The southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and then the Persians defeated the Babylonians, and God's people remained in captivity. The scene before us takes place in 458 B.C. Verses 1 through 3, what we didn't read, recounts the report to Nehemiah about the status of Jerusalem. The walls had been torn down. and In the book of Ezra, we read that the Persians had saw that the people were starting to do some work there, and they came back and just made things even worse. So the Babylonians destroyed the walls, and then the Persians came back and did even more damage. So this is bad news for Nehemiah. So what's his response? It's prayer. And from this prayer, we find three key truths about prayer. The priority of prayer, the practice of prayer, and the persistence of prayer. So first, the priority of prayer. Following this devastating news about the status of his homeland, the city of Jerusalem, Nehemiah's heart sinks. And how could it not? He's absolutely crushed by the report. Can you blame him? Certainly not the update he wanted to hear. Can you relate? Have you gotten just kind of soul-crushing news at some point? Perhaps it was a doctor who came in with those awful words, you have cancer. Or maybe it was a spouse telling you they want nothing to do with you and they're leaving. Maybe it was an unexpected phone call that a family member or a friend had passed away. Perhaps it was your beloved senior pastor announcing that he was retiring. When bad news comes, and it will, how do we respond? Well, how does Nehemiah respond? Verse 4, it says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is wrecked by this news. He wept and mourned for days. And we see there an intense concern for his brothers and sisters. They are 800 miles away. And yet it's not for him out of sight, out of mind, like it's so easy for us. But more important than his tears are his prayers. He fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And we must not miss the significance of what he's doing here. At the very end of this passage, we find words that seem very out of place. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. You're like, what? why is that there? I mean, it doesn't really seem to go with what we read in chapter 2. It doesn't seem to fit. But that detail helps us significantly. The cupbearer was the one who tasted the king's wine so as to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Obviously, that person needed to be very trustworthy, very loyal. But think about this. If you're the cupbearer, you're beside the king day in, day out, all the time. And so you hear the business of the kingdom. You have input into what's going on. So Nehemiah had a lot of sway in the decisions of the kingdom. 
All that to say, he's got great influence in the Persian kingdom. And if you keep reading through the book of Nehemiah, you'll find very quickly that on top of his position of influence, he's a man of action. He has a plan. He's all about accomplishing it. He's very practical. And so the fact that the first thing he does is stop and pray is eye-opening. Are you the type of person who stops and prays first? If I'm honest, I'm not always like that. I tend to be a very practical person. And I can fall into the trap of thinking that prayer is not very practical. And I know that sounds terrible to say, especially as a pastor. But my guess is you fall into thinking that way as well. How many things on your to-do list does prayer help you check off? Unless it's on your list, it's nothing, right? The to-do list is still there, and so we can be very quick to just move on. We've got to do a bunch of stuff. We've got to get busy. And so prayer is often the last thing we do rather than the first. Throughout studying and writing the sermon this week, I've been convicted of my own lack of prayer, and the Lord has caused me just to stop and pray multiple times, and that's good. Maybe the Lord has convicted you of something similar. What keeps us from having prayer as the first priority? In Hugh Prince Hugh's story, The City of Everywhere, a man arrived in a city on a cold morning, and as he got off the train, the station was like every other train station with crowds of people, except that everyone was barefoot. He noticed the cab driver was barefoot, and so he said, Pardon me, I was just wondering why you don't wear shoes. Don't you believe in shoes? Sure we do, said the driver. Why don't you wear them? Ah, that's the question. Why don't we wear shoes? Why don't we? After breakfast, he walked out on the street in the snow, and every person he saw was barefoot. He asked another man about it and pointed out that shoes protect the feet from cold weather. The man says, we know about shoes. See that building over there? That is a shoe factory. We are very proud of that plant, and every week we gather there to hear the man in charge tell us about shoes and how wonderful they are. Then why don't you wear them? Ah, that's the question. Friends, aren't we the same way when it comes to prayer so often? We say we believe in it. We know all the right answers. We know exactly what it is, and we know how to do it. But yet often, we don't. And at the end of the day, we don't really have a good answer as to why we don't. Cyril Barber has this to say about why people don't pray. He says, the self-sufficient do not pray. They merely talk to themselves. The self-satisfied will not pray. They have no knowledge of their need. The self-righteous cannot pray. They have no basis on which to approach God. Perhaps you're self-sufficient or self-satisfied or self-righteous. Maybe you're one or more of them and you don't even realize it. How quickly we are to turn to a friend for advice instead of going to the Lord in prayer. How often do we start our tasks instead of starting with prayer? Prayer must be how we start how we start our day, how we start our work, how we start our meals, how we start everything. Prayer must be the priority. In this season of transition as a church, prayer must be how we start. It's not hurry up and find a new pastor as soon as possible. It's not hurry up and keep things going so that we don't lose members. 
No, it's hurry up and pray. Prayer must be our priority as a church. We must pray first, not later or last. Well, that's the priority of prayer. Secondly, in this passage, we see the practice of prayer. And this comes from Nehemiah's prayer, how he goes about praying. As I mentioned earlier, this is kind of a model prayer, one that we can use as an example. Think of Jesus' words in Matthew 6 before he gives the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this. And we could say something very similar about this prayer. Pray like this. Now we shouldn't think that this was the prayer that Nehemiah just said over and over again, word for word, day after day. Maybe it's a summary of what he prayed. Maybe it was his first prayer when he first learned. But whatever the case is, this prayer serves as an example for you and I to gauge how we pray and to learn from it. Sometimes you and I can struggle with where to start when it comes to prayer. We know we should pray, but we stop praying. We're like, Lord, I don't even know what to say. It's like, dear God, and then we're just like at a loss for words. And when that happens... I think it's very helpful to take a prayer in the Bible and just pray it word for word. And then say, God, help me to personalize this. Maybe that's a jumping off point for your prayers. Perhaps you've heard the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. And that's really helpful. And that's exactly what we find in Nehemiah's prayers. We work through it. Notice how he begins. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Just that one sentence, it's full of adoration, praising God for who he is, for what he's done. Friends, this is where our prayer should start. Oftentimes we bring a laundry list of requests to God. God, I want you to do this and this and this and this and this. We end up kind of making God like a a cosmic genie just to kind of give us what we want. And when we do that, we make prayer about us. But prayer is not about us. Life isn't about us. It's about God, and so our prayer should be about Him. So we begin by praising God. Scripture is full of prayers that begin with praise. In Acts chapter 4, we find the believers praying for boldness. Yet they begin, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them. And we find even more praise. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is praying on behalf of the people and for God to be merciful. But he begins, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. It's almost the exact same beginning as we find here for Nehemiah. One final example, Solomon prays in 1 Kings 8. He's dedicating the temple after it's been built. And he starts, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Praise and adoration for God. God alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. And so our prayers should be full of praise to him. That's what Nehemiah does. And then he moves into confession. In the middle of verse 6, he begins, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. 
We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah was an upstanding man. He is the one that you would want to emulate. A very godly man. Yet, he recognizes his own sin. It would have been easy for him to say, God, I confess the sins of those people. They're the ones at fault. But he shows solidarity with them. We have sinned, even I and my father's house. How quick are we to shirk responsibility? We don't want to see our part of the problem. But that's not what Nehemiah does. He knows that he has a part to play in the sins of the people. G.K. Chesterton was a famous Catholic writer and philosopher during the late 1800s and early 1900s. One time, the Times of London invited several authors to respond to the theme, What's Wrong with the World? Chesterton's response was a brief letter which read this, Dear Sirs, I am, sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton understood what Nehemiah did as well. He was the problem. Friends, you and I are the problem. Sin is in every one of our hearts. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, there's sin out in the world. Yes, there's evil happening that we watch on the news. But the problem is us. It's our heart. We live in a society that doesn't like the idea of sin and confession. It doesn't make us feel good. It doesn't bring people to fill up the pews. But the Bible's full of reminders that we are sinners and we need to confess and repent of our sin. That must be a central part of our prayers. Prayer includes adoration, confession, and third, thanksgiving. Starting in verse 8, we read, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Here Nehemiah is thankful to God for his word and for his promises for what he's going to do. When Nehemiah prays, remember, he's not afraid that God is somehow going to forget. God can't forget anything. He's unchanging. Rather, he's calling upon God to remember and act in light of his promises. And he's thanking God for those promises and for his acts that will come. This section is full of references or allusions to Scripture. Many of them from the book of Deuteronomy, including Chapter 9, verse 29, chapter 12, verse 5, and chapter 28, verse 64. And so we see that in this thankfulness, he's, one of the things he's thanking God for is for his word. His devotion to scripture pours forth in his prayer. This reminds us how much being people of the word connects to being a people of prayer. The final section is supplication, making requests. Notice that this doesn't happen until verse 11. It's not how Nehemiah begins, Lord, do this for me. It's how he ends. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. 
And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah was asking God to grant him favor with King Artaxerxes because he was going to present the case of his people. And he was going to ask to go back to Jerusalem to help with this project. It's a huge request. He's an important official in the kingdom. And this is a non-believing king. What's the likelihood that he's going to be allowed to go back? But it's a big prayer request. I mean, it's a big God. Friends, there's nothing wrong with presenting our requests to God. In fact, we should do that. We're commanded to do so. Prayer isn't simply asking God for things. But it isn't less than that. Are there things in your life where you need help? Have you taken the time to pray about them? Don't believe the lie that God is too busy with more important things. We have a big God. And so you can bring your request to him no matter how big or small you think they might be. We've seen the priority of prayer, the practice of prayer, and lastly, the persistence in prayer. Perhaps you're thinking, John, where do we see persistence in prayer here in this passage? Well, on the surface, we see it in verse 4 where it says that Nehemiah continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. But that doesn't really give us a timeline. We don't know what continued in prayer looks like. So to get the whole picture, we need to do a little bit of math with the Gregorian calendar. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't spend much time with the Gregorian calendar. I don't really know much, so I had to look some of this up. But in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says that it was the month of Kislev. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it says it's the month of Nisan. The month of Kislev is our November and into December. The month of Nisan is our March or April. So depending upon when this is, when Nehemiah first finds out and first prays, to when he goes before King Artaxerxes, it's anywhere between three and five months. It's not days. It's months. And what does he do that whole time? He's praying. And that's persistence in prayer. He didn't pray once and expect God to make it happen. He prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed some more. Nehemiah's persistence in prayer is also seen all throughout the book, which shows us that he's a man of prayer. This wasn't a one-hit wonder. This was something he did all throughout his life. If you have your Bible open, look with me at chapter 2, verse 4. Nehemiah is getting ready to go to the king. In fact, he's in the king's presence, and starting in verse 4, it says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight. And then he goes on to make his request. But notice, what he does there. What's your, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I made my request. It's what some scholars call an arrow prayer. Very short, direct, and to the point. We find Nehemiah praying in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, chapter 5, verse 19, and chapter 6, verse 9. Prayer wasn't the last thing on the list for him. It was the first thing, and he persisted in it. Friends, you and I need to be persistent in our prayers as well. We shouldn't fall for the trap of praying real quickly and then just moving on to 
what we think might be more important. Prayer is not a magic wand that we just wave and God will give us what we want. We don't manipulate God. When we persist in prayer, it has a way of slowing us down. Now, we certainly don't want prayer to be an excuse for inaction. But so often, the opposite is true. We jump to action and then we pray later. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, put it this way. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Prayer makes us wait. If we're honest, we don't like waiting. We live in a world that gives us immediate access to information on our phones. It's at our fingertips. We can have something delivered to us in a couple of days. But oftentimes, God's timing is not ours, and he makes us wait. And prayer causes us to wait. Even more important than waiting, when we persist in prayer, we remember The prayer really is all about a relationship with God. Prayer doesn't change God, for He is unchanging. Prayer changes us. It unites our desires to His. Prayer is about communion and fellowship with God. The God who made us and who saved us. Nehemiah's prayers show an emphasis on his relationship with God. He wasn't just jumping to prayer requests. He's praising God, he's thanking him, he's confessing sin. It's all about that relationship made possible by the work of Jesus. Nehemiah was looking forward to Jesus. We look back to Jesus. The access that we have to God is because of Christ. Remember, God doesn't just simply want your obedience. He doesn't just want you to stop and pray more. He wants your love. Jesus tells us in Matthew 22 that the greatest Commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Loving God is key, and prayer will help us love God more. We've seen the priority of prayer, the practice of prayer, and the persistence of prayer. We've talked a lot about prayer, but I don't want us to walk walk away from the sermon just with a bigger head knowledge of prayer. Man, I know more about it. And then we fail to practice it like those people with shoes in this story earlier in the sermon. So I want to give us three practical applications for how we can pray as a church in this season. First is that we have several prayer teams that meet once a month here at the church. One meets the first Tuesday of the month in the morning, one meets on the first Thursday, one meets on the second Monday. Perhaps you consider joining a prayer team. You can reach out to the church office with more information. Or maybe you want to start your own prayer team. Let me know. I'll be happy to talk with you about that. Secondly, I want to invite anyone who would want to pray on Sundays before we start worship to gather at 8.30 in the parlor for 15 minutes of prayer. For some of you that may not work with your schedule, I don't expect that to work for everyone. But call upon the name of the Lord to bless our worship and to work in our lives on Sundays. Lastly, I want us all to pray at the same time each day. And so what I'm encouraging us to do is to stop at 8 o'clock at night and to pray. And if you have your phone, I want you to do something. I know we don't normally do this in church, but I want you to take your phone out. And I want you to put it in your phone to actually make a reminder or to set an alarm. It's okay, you have permission to take your phone out in church. 
I'm not calling you out. I'm not going to start texting everybody. But set it a, a reminder that repeats daily. Because if you're like me, you say, okay, yeah, I'll do that, and then you forget. But if you have an alarm and a reminder on your phone, you might actually do it. So 8 o'clock, I would encourage us to pray for three things. One, pray that our love for God as a church would grow. Secondly, pray that we would be faithful to the mission that God has called us to, making disciples. And third, pray for the pulpit nominating committee as they do this important work of searching for the next pastor. And then end with the Lord's Prayer. If you're by yourself, pray alone. If you have people around you, family members, pray together. What a blessing it will be to know that people across our community, from our church, are praying at the same time. 8 p.m. May we not just be people who know a lot about prayer, but may we be people who pray. Let us pray.